Welcome to Glam City. Uh, on Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people working in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. I'm Chelsea Barnett. And today on Glam City, I'm speaking with the wonderful Dr Liz Giffray, a Senior Lecturer in Communications at University of Technology, Sydney. Liz not only teaches and researches in the fields of communication and media music, but she's also 2SER's archivist and has been digging through the station's records as part of celebrations for the station's 40th birthday. She also presents 2SER's Deep Dive in the Archive series alongside the station's own Jess Kladgeman, highlighting the history of 2SER through archival records. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Chelsea. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Let's kind of jump straight on in. I think we share quite a, a passion for pop culture. Yeah. Your ex- your general expertise kind of lies in this area. You've written about Hannah Gadsby. You've written about the Logies. You've written about Doctor Who. I heard you on the radio once talking about a Golden Girls board game, which is just wonderful. What do you love about pop culture? Um Oh, where to begin? I mean, what's not to love about pop culture? We could do that. But I think what I love most is that it's culture that's everywhere. Um, It's culture that's completely accessible. It's culture that doesn't have any kind of barriers to... Uh, money or, you know, um, elitism. You Often you can just go straight in with no prior knowledge, although people who do have prior knowledge build it in really weird and interesting ways. And it's just, I mean, to say that it's joyous is true in one sense, but it's not always either. Like we can talk about Star Wars and horror movies and, you know, all that stuff that's not necessarily joyous either. But it's really, what I love about pop, pop, pop culture is it's not, you know, tied behind a massive paywall or behind a massive art gallery or in a, in a huge, huge theatre that's going to cost you hundreds of dollars to get to. We're often talking about stuff that lives on TV, on radio, you know, really, really accessible. That's what I love. I think, I suppose it comes down to the popular in pop culture, right? Sure. That that people uh, find enjoyment in it, cling to it, find meaning in it. That yep. makes it so interesting and so wonderful to kind of be a part of. Um, do you could do you ever get the the kind of reaction or the um, I suppose the response to maybe that pop culture is trivial? Oh, for sure. Yeah, right. always. And <clears throat> and there's there's a sense that I guess if anybody can access it, then it's not then it's dumbed down somehow. You yep. know what I mean? Something for the masses. There's this idea that then. You know, and it's tied to commodification too. If it's mass produced, therefore it just must be lowest common denominator and all that kind of stuff. But if we look back, and we've got to say, yeah, but if most, if many people love it, there's got to be something in it, right? Absolutely. You know? So and and so that's the the puzzle. Also, too, people who get really annoyed at pop culture or will say, oh well, it's not very interesting. I mean, if anybody could do it, then anybody would. You know, so we've really got to consider the fact that the art there is to make it accessible, to make, to get as many people as possible. You don't have the ability to rely on, you know, existing patronage or, you know, big hierarchies and stuff. You've really got to get in, do something interesting and get out again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, I'm feeling like kindred spirits. Like, like, (laughs) yes, exactly, exactly. Um, you're also the the founder of the journal for the working class, or of yeah, journal of working class yes. studies. Yeah, um, I'm co-founder. Dr. Sarah Atfield at UTS is she's really the brains trust behind that. I was the big mouth <laughs> who said to her. So she'd be, she'd been going to the working class studies association conferences in the states for years, and they'd been talking about the need to have a journal for years. And the first time, second time I went with her, I'm like. 
Let's, you could do this. Yeah. You could do this. So um, it was a bit of a, you know, she had the idea, I had the big mouth and, you know, the knowledge of how of WordPress. And between us, we're getting there, but it's really, really her baby. And uh, I, I suppose I bring that up because it, it kind of speaks to the importance, I suppose, you hold in terms of accessibility. Oh, for sure. Beyond, beyond kind of class structures, beyond wealth, beyond, exactly. you know, material means. Yeah, absolutely. And if we look back at, you know, why, say, pop culture has a bad reputation, it's literally because of money. Yes. The idea, and it's not just even culture, it's media forms. So the fact that we have film is this elevated, you know, this elevated media form, but TV is still considered as something that's lesser than. Well, it's because one, you pay for, and one, you mostly don't. Yep. You know, it's as simple as that. Yep. So we, you know, and then when people want to, qualify it, they'll talk about quality TV or pay TV. They have to kind of go through and, and, you know, value add tied to money. Whereas if we just sit down and we look and we say, okay, but really, surely engagement should be something that's counted and different forms will do it. For example, if you look at sport, you know, we can understand that if we get, you know, a couple of hundred people, a couple of hundred people just even in a little kids game, but if we get a couple of hundred thousand people watching a final, we can appreciate that that is a thing that's important because those people are coming together. But we don't think about, it, you know, a game show in the same way. We yeah. don't think about a pop song in the same way. For, well, I say we don't. I think the Academy doesn't necessarily and um, those who are, you know, opinion makers don't necessarily. There's still a feeling that it's just commercial and it's rubbish and it's disposable. Yeah, and I suppose, um, you know, somebody else who also works in the field of pop culture, um, I feel like I'm always having to justify my reasons for thinking that pop culture is important and sure. worthy of 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 attention and and um, consideration. Whereas something like if I was saying, oh, but I I, I work in the field of Sha- like if I work in Shakespearean studies, then that would be automatically understood as something that was quote unquote important. Of course, without going back to the irony of the fact the irony of the fact that Shakespeare wrote for the masses. Absolutely, you know, um, absolutely stole for the masses, depending on who you believe. But you know, <laughs> let's not get into it. We yeah, don't have time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so and that's that's it too. And and I guess the other thing to think about when we talk about pop culture is we tend to be talking about things that are very, very contemporary. So there's a question of, you know, is quality shown over time? Yep. So, you know, Shakespeare, okay, right, filled houses way back in the day. Did they care? Did they not care? Was it the soap opera of its time? Well, time showed that it was lasting. And yes. so now, I mean, if we talk about pop culture and what is valued, it tends to be people are happy to say, well, I, I will love Neighbours now that it's 25 years old or I will love Doctor Who now that it's, you know, stood the test of time. But at the time, people are a bit nervous because I guess they think, oh, well, this is disposable. It could go away and I'm going to look like an idiot, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, no. More specifically, you've written and you work in the field of music and you've written a lot about uh, music television, yep. things like Rage and Countdown. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why you think that those, again, why you think that that's kind of worthy and important of, sure. of attention? Yeah, I mean, my look, Countdown's probably the type of thing that doesn't need to be justified, again, because of that passage of time. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got enough people who, you know, are still talking about a show that was on in the 70s and 80s and people now who are in quite high positions in the music industry and the rest who can say, that was my formative time. Um, For me, what was exciting about writing about Rage, given that Rage is still on TV, and when I started looking at Rage for my PhD, oh, 
I forget how long ago it was, the first thing a lot of people said was, is that still on air? But what's weird is it's still there, but it's fallen through the cracks in terms of how we can talk about mm-hmm. music television. Because when I went back and had a look at what people talked about, the history of music television tends to be a history of the hosts of music television. So even if you look at something like Countdown, you can't talk about Countdown without talking about Molly. Like, you just can't do it. You can't talk about Bandstand without Brian Henderson. Yep. You go into international examples of that and it's the same thing, you know. Rage doesn't have a host. Yeah. So the first thing is, is well, whose story do you tell? Absolutely. Second thing is, is because it's music video, in terms of what archiving or not is present, there actually really isn't a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. we were lucky from, I think it was 98 or 99, there's internet kind of playlists up. But even then, it's really hard to say. So... What do we say about that? Is that just what arrived and then how? And then when I started digging, I realised that a lot of that was just organised at a relatively ad hoc way because it was in this little corner of the ABC that that thankfully could be moved around a bit. So it meant that it avoided um, being cut altogether. It just kind of stayed under the radar. But often there wasn't like a a clear, big musical vision of this is what we should do. It was just this will have a crack, you know, we'll have a crack. And what's so beautiful about Rage now today is that it still is a place where, you know, Australian music gets a go. It's more diverse than Triple J in some ways in terms of what it plays mm-hmm. um, and in terms of its access for Australian artists. Mm-hmm. Plus, you've also still got that, the pleasure of the broadcast, which I think is really easy to forget now. We think, oh, it's online, so people will just pick what they want. But if you don't know what you want, you can't pick it. And there's something so beautiful about being able to sit down and turn on a, turn on a button and say, hit me. Yeah, Hit for me sure. with something I didn't know, you know, and, and Rage still uses little techniques like what they used to call the Rage Trap, mm-hmm. where they'd try and program things just so that you'd be like, just one more, just one more. And I think we've probably all had that experience where it's two o'clock in the morning and you've come home and you think, cup of tea or something else, yeah. <laughs> just until I want to have a little sleep. And then you're like, oh my God, what is this? Yeah, yeah. Or I've forgotten this. Or, you know, and all of a sudden it's 4am and you're still there. So, yeah. I think that idea about as well about like, if you don't know what it is you're looking for, then how do you go about looking for it? Of course. Again, speaks to ideas about accessibility, mm-hmm. about kind of a, a kind of a, a cultural space where you have the the language and the vocabulary to be able to talk about it. Um, whereas if you're on the outside of that. You don't even know what's there and what you're missing out on and how to go about it. And so something like rage, you know, from what you're saying, uh, really opens that up and allows people who might not have had access to those to Mm. those kinds of um, music or whatever uh, to be part of something else. For sure. And it also it's not the thing about Rage is it's not just contemporary stuff. So there's a lot of archival stuff and older music. They also have the guest programmers, which yep. is kind of, I would like to think of as an interviewerless interview. Mm-hmm. Insofar as it's an example, it's time, sorry, for musicians just to talk directly to their fans in the language that they use in music. So they can say, I'm going to program, you know, 10 songs, 15 songs, however long the shift is, just to give you a bit of a story. It can be personal. It can be, you know, it can be explaining their work. It can be, I've always loved this or I'm going to play this because it's going to annoy somebody or whatever. But you get that kind of insight as well. And, you know, there's lots of musicians who are on the record now who are saying, I didn't know my history. You know, but because I saw somebody I loved playing this band on Rage, then I've got a bit of a chance of digging through. Mm. The other thing Rage has been doing too has been when artists pass, we get this kind of virtual memorial and this kind of virtual wake. So it's been happening, you know, sort of 
well, unfortunately forever because artists always pass, but it was most noticeable for me when you know, we got the rise of social media and Twitter and stuff. So when, say, Chrissy Amphlett from The Divinals passed away, Rage and the, the people that put together Rage work on a shoestring and work so passionately and so quickly, they kind of bundled up some of the best ofs and you'd see people watching Rage but then using the hashtag on Twitter watching Rage to kind of share stories and you know have this kind of virtual memorial of her and since then they've done that with you know the biggest of the big when Bowie died when Prince died when George Michael died they turned all of that around but then they're also doing that for local artists too you know so someone like John English who we might kind of easily forget we can say but this was an important person for us and we get our take on it you know what I mean yeah yeah for sure I suppose we might use that as a way to kind of get into this at this project Mm -hmm. that's happening at 2SER at the moment um because as I said uh, at the opening of the show, 2SER is 40 years old this year, which is just fantastic. And as part of the celebrations, you're co-hosting uh, a show called Deep Dive in the Archives. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so all of that, and that's with Jess here at the station. Um, Deep Dive in the Archive basically started as a way to kind of pull out these oddities that we'd found. And I need to qualify all of this because I know that you've got proper archivists here. I'm just somebody who's in, who was left in charge of 46 boxes of stuff. Let me be very clear. What I lack in ability, I make up for in enthusiasm. And I'm very, very happy to be told how to do things. And so a big part of what I've been doing is desperately asking for advice. Yeah, sure. And I'm a good, I'm a good enough archivist mm-hmm. insofar as, you know, I think if as long as I can leave materials in a, in better shape than what I found them we're doing okay you know yep. so and and pass on to professionals wherever we can that's the idea yeah but deep dive really started with pulling out these little bits and pieces and saying I actually don't know what this is but isn't it beautiful or isn't it strange let's have a chat about it and hello listener if you know if this was you if you can give us anything else please do so yeah it started with little oddities and then since then we've had a couple of instances where we've talked to people so one of the ones I'm most proud of was we were going through these little slides like 80 slides and I just happened to you know and we didn't have a slide projector or anything I was holding them up to the light trying to see just what they were and something that looked like Richard Kingsmill appeared and I went oh I wonder so a bit of DIY digitization where I just put it up to the window put my iPhone in front of it and took a picture just so it was good enough yeah high tech good yeah, enough sure. sent him an email and said um excuse me Mr Kingsmill is this you he replied and said yes and I said would you mind coming to talk to us Sure. So he came and had a chat to us. We talked a bit. Uh, we talked about his time at the station and all the rest of it. And what was great about that was from that first discussion, he mentioned we'd asked him if there was anything that he was particularly proud of during his time here, and he mentioned this series, Money Not Harmony, okay. which he it was it was 1980s, you know, music industry stuff. He didn't even know if it still existed. We spoke to our friends at the NFSA and said, I don't suppose, you know, because I, I looked on their catalogue and they had a listing, but it didn't say to SCR, it didn't say King's Mill, anything like that. Turns out it was the same thing. It had been mislabeled on their end. He didn't know, but I mean, they weren't to know either because it had just arrived in a batch of other things. So we were able to find it, properly label it, unearth it and, you know, give it back out to the public. So all of that just from a little what is this, you know, and is anybody willing to play with us? So it was good. Was that, um, you know, you mentioned as well that you've kind of the the caretaker, I suppose, um, of 46 boxes. 
Uh, is that little story or anecdote there indicative of the state of those 46 oh, sure. right. there and, and that's why, I mean, it's very nice to be called the archivist. And I think it was Jess that first called me that. And I went, oh, I like the sound of that. But, I mean, it's better than keeper of old stuff. No, I mean, but, take the title. Absolutely. Yeah, except that I know there are there are people who train and do, you know what I mean? Um, I feel more like a nurse than, anyway. But, um, yeah, look, the, it literally was boxes of stuff. It was, And partly it was because living in the basement here, stuff just had to be moved out of harm's way. Some of it was waterlogged, some of it was under threat of being electrocuted, all manner of stuff. And it's no criticism of the station. And in fact, I'm amazed that somebody had the presence of mind to keep that much stuff. Mm -hmm. Because when you're working at the coalface with not a lot of money, not a lot of time, mostly volunteers, you're busy working on the next job, not on keeping an eye on the last job, you know, let alone jobs that happened two decades before you were born in some cases if you're you know the newest bunch of volunteers so yeah it was just the biggest challenge was going through those boxes initially and just doing an an inventory to begin and we actually had to outsource that so the center for public history gave us some money to be able to pay for an ra to do that more than anything else because i do not have the self-control to open one box and not just stay on that one box for a month and read everything that's in it. Whereas we had this lovely RA, Christopher Comerford, who had um, who who did have the self control to say, "I'm just going to write what's in it and keep moving." So yeah, I mean, I don't know how he did that either because I am feeling really like, "Yep, I would absolutely just sit there and." He was a superstar. Yeah. He was a superstar. Yeah. I mean, what what things were in there? So we had. Heaps of different media, so everything from reel-to-reel in various configurations and various states of decay to uh, cassettes, mini-discs, dat tapes, bits that were kind of in between. There's a couple of like uh, floppy disks and oh. zippy drive things. Um, I say zippy, you know, sorry to be too technical here. Oh, please, uh, <laughs> leaving me behind. And then there's a whole lot of uh, there's a whole lot of paperwork, obviously. And again, paperwork in various states of completion. Um, a whole lot of copies of the station magazine listing post, which we've been able to get digitised and is now up on, on Trove. So we can give you all oh the details about goodness. that. But we were so excited about that because that means now that we can really release this back into the wild and let people engage and play. Plus, it also means that if we're going to try and, you know, date anything else, it's so much easier to be able to search, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, we found that. We found a whole bunch of T-shirts and stuff like that. A couple signed by Rolf Harris that we're still not really sure what to do with. Mm. Um, But, you know, speaking to archivists, I've found and I presented at a conference last year about this and a few archivists from a few places went yeah we've all got a Rolf Harris we don't know what to do with so you know I mean it's it's raised these really kind of interesting questions for us as well about what do we unearth but also what do we kind of keep in their context and maybe you know what I mean either not talk about or keep in context you know you're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3 to download this show head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City this show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER and on this episode we're talking to University of Technology Sydney academic and 2SER's very own archivist Liz Jaffray um I think you can claim the title of archivist. Uh, and that kind of leads me to my next, I suppose, set of questions. Um, had you always been interested in archives or was this something that, yeah. that led 
uh, that kind of grew out of your interest in music? Or well, I think it's kind of both. Like okay. if we talk about in popular music, it, you know, fans, collectors, really, they're archivists, you know, and um, <clears throat> and oh, and, that's such a nice point. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, and depending on who I've lived with over the years or my family, they would go closer to hoarders. But let's face <laughs> it, it's that that's really what we do. You know, any fan worth their salt, and that's another thing that I'm really passionate about as an academic is fan studies, mm. and is really thinking about well. It's understanding the legacy of something. It's understanding the importance of keeping artefacts, keeping them in a certain context, um, you know, and, and also a range of artefacts. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm the type of fan that would have ticket stubs and, you know, little bits from concerts. I'm still carrying around in my wallet, um, you know, the little bits from Adele's concert a few years ago that she showered down in confetti, you know, those types of things. But again, it comes to good enough. I should probably put them somewhere other than my wallet. But then we can also sit there and say, but does that journey tell us something as well? You know what I mean? And that's the other side that I found with this 2SER stuff is, yes, while it's beautiful to be able to have things in pristine condition, Things that are a bit ratty or things that have been thumbed over or written over and stuff still tell us a story. Absolutely. Mm. Share something about, you know, the meaning that people attach to to objects to ephemera. Oh, for sure. And and from popular music studies, for example. So I I was collecting vinyl when they were still called records. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and by virtue of growing up, like, you know, some little kids with their dads would go to parks or whatever on Saturday afternoon. I'd go with my dad to secondhand record stores, partly because that was the budget we had, but also because it was the interest we had. And I still love that if you buy secondhand records rather than pristine new vinyl, they're in states of decay, but it tells you something about the person who had it before. So, you know, I can sit there and say I've got George Michael records, for example, that whoever had it before me loved the fast tracks but hated the slow tracks, and I can tell by which one has the most scratches on it, you know wow. what I mean, which is not great as an audiophile, but we don't need – if I want a good version of, you know, Freedom, I can download it now. Absolutely. That's not the issue. It's about knowing that this was a thing that somebody loved and repeated and, you know what I mean, like getting a sense of – their story and their connection to the music, and I love that stuff. I absolutely love it. fascinating. Does that speak to the reason why we should hold on to this kind of material, do you think? Yeah, look, it does, but then, you know, we also have the issue of limited space, limited time, you know, all of those types of things. So we've, we we do have to make decisions, and I that's where I really, really defer to the expertise, self-control, and, you know, just professionalism of proper trained archivists how do you know what to say no to and yeah. how how can you have the discipline to do that you know so we've tried to do this do that here by again making sure we're in conversation as much as we can be with places like the NFSA and the state library and we've had a we've done some have found some really beautiful things through the Australian Gay and Lesbian Archive um, so that we can say all right well this is something that's already being looked after somewhere else so do we need to hold on to it or do we need to hold on to it you know um, in like do we need to preserve it in some way or can we just have it as a thing that's you know that continues to exist but if it degrades a little bit that's okay that's yeah. life you know yeah but the, those things are really hard 
those decisions are really hard to make. And I mean, was it Marie Kondo? Like, I mean, I don't understand that lady. When does throwing things out bring joy? I don't understand that at I, all. I agree. But I do, the logistics of there's only so much space. Yeah. And there's only... There's only so much money. There's only so much time. Exactly. Exactly. And also these things will degrade. Yes. You know, and we can sit there and say, well, the degradation does tell a story, but we do get to a point where they actually cease to make sense. You yes. Know, so. And then that also poses a set of challenges for researchers or just interested people for sure. 10, 20 years down the track when they want to access certain things and be like, well, I'm looking at a disintegrated piece of paper or record yeah. or something that, I mean, might show me that it was well-loved mm. and that's meaningful in its own right, but then what else can I get from this? That's right. And also when can you... When can you reliably return it to God or wherever yes. wherever you believe that, you know, ticket stubs go when they die? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So, and there, are, there is just that time sometimes too when I think we have to say, okay, this has served its purpose. Now let it go back. So, it's know? really interesting because, you know, on a personal level, those collections that I've made as, as a child, as a teenager, and then coming to a point where going like, does this, how does this kind of work in my life anymore. Mm. It doesn't bring me the same meaning or the same joy. It's time to maybe let that go. Um, how you kind of grapple with those sets of questions for an institution with a 40-year history is is much larger and they're, you know, much more difficult, I assume. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I certainly feel a lot of responsibility. And what's been great about the process of going through a deep dive and running up to the anniversary, and we've done a whole bunch of original interviews with people that we've, that, that you know, have contributed, it's like lifting a rock and finding all of the things that come out underneath it. So we'll find one thing and people will send us 10 more that relate to that, which is beautiful, but it's also, what do we do with this? What are we going to do? You know? Yeah. How are we going to look after this? So, again, it's that passage of making sure that if we can complete collections elsewhere or have you know have a good a good relationship with people whose core business this is to be able to look after this stuff properly um, and again use the example of something like listening post we don't have a complete collection of listening post but we've got lots of doubles and a good enough collection I mean now would it be more useful to have the paper collection sat in the station so people can thumb through it and people can, you know, I mean, yes, it means that that will degrade, but we know that we've got a digital copy, a digital copy that won't degrade. So those are the types of yeah, conversations. And not we just can a have. digital copy that won't degrade, but one that is accessible through such a fantastic service like Trove. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which means that anybody can access it. Exactly. And also people can put in corrections and do all of that yeah. kind of stuff too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've reached the the point of the episode where we get to explore what's happening in this wonderful city of ours, all things glam. Uh, Liz, do you have anything that you're looking forward to looking at that's coming up for you? I do. The State Library of New South Wales has a Meet Bluey and Bingo day happening as part of their open day on the 12th of October. And I mean, for those of us that love Bluey either by force or, you know, I mean, I to say that I went there willingly to begin with is true. To say that I've been kept there willingly is probably a Yeah, stretch. children have a special power, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> but having said that, though, this is just an amazing piece of Australian popular culture at the moment. Bluey is, you know, made, out of a, made by a team out of Brisbane. They have done amazing, amazing things. It's hit all these records, broken all these records for the number of times things have been watched on iView and all that stuff. I mean, a million of those views are just in my house 
alone, but it's had such an impact. Now they've gone to the BBC, now they've gone to Disney, all unedited as well. So Wonderful. with all the little quirks of Australianness, they can be chased by a bin chicken and that doesn't need to be explained, <laughs> you know, or if it does need to be explained, it's their problem. Like we yeah. get to send our culture out there yeah. and for our children too, you know, our children's culture out there. And what I love about Bluey and Bingo is you've got two little girl puppies who just play and they've got beautiful relationship with their parents and with their cousins and with all this kind of stuff. Yeah, Meet Bluey and Bingo is going to be like just all that footage of the Beatles when they arrived in Australia. I'm telling you, I'm predicting it's going to be bigger than that because these fans know it better. Yeah. You know, yeah. and they feel it more. So oh, I, that's so I can't wonderful. wait. I'm a bit terrified, but I can't wait. It'll be exciting. And, of course, what's happening is as a result of all of this digging in the archive, we've got the 40th anniversary exhibition for 2SER, which is happening at 107 Studios in Redfern. We kick off officially on the 10th of October and we go for until the 20th of October. And that's free, completely accessible. Just have a look at 2SER.com and you'll get all the details. But that's a mixture of the ephemera, little audio clips we've put together a whole bunch of stuff and we know that it's not going to be complete so we're hoping that people will turn up and say oh I was there or I missed a bit or here's the thing so we welcome feedback as well you know we like to think of this as the trial for the 50th right so we've got 10 years to catch up with everything um yeah but we'd love to see people there too wonderful oh that sounds great I'm definitely gonna um make my way there what I'm also going to do I'm talking about kind of pop culture and pop cultural uh, kind of moments. Um, the Ashfield Library in, in Sydney in the Inner West on the 24th of October is holding a speaker series called Meet Mr Wickham with the none other than the man who played Mr Wickham in the 1995 BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. You all know what I'm talking about. Uh, Adrian Lucas, he's going to be chatting to Susanna Fullerton, who's the president of the Jane Austen Society of Australia. It's completely free. I think tickets are still available. Um, so if you Google that, you should be able to come along. Uh, 24th of October, I'm very excited to to see Mr. Wickham in action, really. Um, that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com, and you can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so. Um, email us at glamcity at 2SER.com. And a huge thank you to Dr Liz Dufresne for being our guest today and for indulging all my love of pop culture. Thanks, Chelsea. What a joy. Absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is being recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation whose sovereignty was never ceded.